0: Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much. It has been such a joy to be in your church and to worship with you this morning. I've already lost my eye makeup crying during worship. And, um, you know, I've traveled a lot, and I've never seen a pastor help sing at the beginning, and most of them shouldn't. But uh, I think yours should do that on a regular basis because that was... That was incredible. Really, really great. And I'm happy for you that your horrible winter is coming to an end. If you've never been to Chicago or seen pictures, I just have to respectfully tell you, as I told the women yesterday, when you describe winter, you do not know what you are talking about. And uh, yay, spring is coming. That's great. I get to go home uh, to summer. Um, let me just tell you briefly about my family. The lady saw these pictures yesterday, but this is my husband, Warren, and uh, we've been married for 37 years in about a week. Um, so, yeah. He's my partner, and um, he is an introvert. People worry about him when I travel, um, but even he's getting a little lonely. I've been gone for two weeks, so I head home tomorrow. And I uh, can't wait to see them. We have been blessed with two daughters, Samantha and Johanna. They're now 27 and 24. I think we have a picture of them too, yeah. And uh, they live together. They have an apartment uh, down in Chicago. They say they live together by choice for the first time in their lives. And um, they are both artists, um, which means that they have lots of jobs um, to try to pay the rent. Um, But they're wonderful girls and then when they moved out they told us we needed an empty nest dog So this is Beanie our little dog and that's who I nurture these days All right, I have a question for you to answer and I'm going to ask you to do This is the part in the the gathering that my husband hates when we have to turn and say something to somebody next to us If you're an introvert, this will be over in just a second But I want you to turn to someone sitting next to you and tell them answer this question What are you keenly interested in outside of work and your family? It can't be either of those two things, but something that you're super interested in. So, for example, my husband loves horses. Um, Some people, I have a friend who loves quilting, and she makes magnificent quilts. Some people are fascinated by a certain era of history, and they want to read everything they can about it. What are you curious about? What are you keenly interested in? What's a hobby of yours? It doesn't matter how. Where people are welcomed and they connect with one another. Well, we're told that Jesus found people in that entrance area selling things. They were selling cattle and sheep and doves. And he saw them exchanging a lot of money at tables. And so let's look at his astonishing response to what we saw. For those of you who think that Jesus is sort of wimpy, or just gentle and sweet. um, This is a really interesting story. This is found in the Gospel of John, chapter two. And we'll put the verses up on the screen. So he made a whip out of cords and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. Picture this, he's throwing over their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples, his followers, remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. When the disciples commented on the zeal of Jesus, they were actually recounting words because they knew the words of the Psalms. And in the Psalm, chapter 69, it says, for zeal for your house consumes me. And the insults of those who insult you Fall on me. David in this psalm is expressing his zeal for God's house. Now we're not talking about a building, like a physical building, which yours, by the way, is lovely. I I love this whole idea of this having been a factory before, the way you've transformed it, its location in your community. it's, It's wonderful. But when we talk about God's house, we're really talking about a community of people, wherever they may gather. And David is basically stating that when God's house is insulted in any way, he takes those insults personally and deeply. So how do you react when other people criticize the church? Either your particular local community or really the big church, big C church. How much do we care about the reputation of the church? Well, I think it's important that first we define reality. And the truth is that worldwide, The reputation of the church is not generally very good among those who do not go to church overall we are losing the next generation most churches are aging they're getting older and older i just came from adelaide and i was speaking at a denominations conference and one of the people shot up her hand and she was an elderly lady and she said our church is declining It's getting older and older and older. How do we bring young people back? They don't have the 19 babies that you have here. They're looking for the younger generation. Well, here's what the American uh, writer Reggie McNeil, he's an expert on, on the church, and this is what he said. He leads a ministry in Atlanta. He said, the farther you go down the generational food chain, the lower the percentage each succeeding generation reports going to church. It's more than numbers. The American culture no longer props up the church the way it did, no longer automatically accepts the church as a player at the table in public life, and can be downright hostile to the church's presence. And from what I'm told, I'm certainly not an expert on the Australian church, but from what i have told, the percentage of people who go to church regularly in your country is even lower than in mine. Several years ago, I was awakened to this issue by a pastor from Northern California named Dan Kimball. He wrote a very provocative book titled, They Like Jesus, But Not the Church. He invested himself in a quest to understand the emerging generations and to really listen to them well, to listen to their concerns. He engaged in numerous coffee shop conversations. I've met him, I've been to his town in Santa Cruz. Um, He wanted to know what people thought about the church who were outside the door. By the way, I love the name of your church door of hope. Door of hope. So he's saying, what about the people outside the door? What is their perception of church? Here are the six common misperceptions of church. Number one, the church is an organized religion with a political agenda. Number two, the church is judgmental and negative. Number three, the church is dominated by males and oppresses females. Number four, the church is homophobic. Number five, the church arrogantly claims all other religions are wrong. Number six, the church is full of fundamentalists who take the whole Bible literally. Those are the top six perceptions of people outside the door. To people outside the church, Christianity is not normal. In fact, many think it's weird. So how does that make you feel? Do you get stirred up with passion and zeal to be a part of transforming the picture people have of God's house? Or maybe... You share the view that the church is not nearly as healthy as it should be. The good news, and you're waiting for some good news, you're looking at me like, she is so depressing. Here's the good news. While the young people Dan interviewed are negative about the church, they're very open to Jesus. And they had positive things to say about him. In fact, he reports that when he would say the name, Jesus, even people who were very far from God got a smile on their face. Clearly though, when it comes to the church, we have some work to do. Jesus called the church his bride. He treasures the church. And if you and I are going to be zealous about the church, whichever one we might attend, we're going to care about making it more healthy, more beautiful, more and more like a place where people would want to come and where all kinds of people would feel welcome. I've been a part of only a few churches in my life. The first one was about three blocks away from my parents' home. We could walk there if we chose to. It's the place that I found my faith. At seven years old, I went to something called Daily Vacation Bible School, and they told me what it would mean to ask Jesus to be the leader of my life, to be my savior, to be my best friend. I had ridden there on a bicycle with my girlfriend who lived next door. Her name was Janet. Halfway home from church, I called out to her, I said, Janet, stop. She thought maybe something was wrong with my bicycle and she stopped her bike and she said, what? And I said, you wanna do it? She said, do what? And I said, you know, ask Jesus if he wants to be our leader and our friend and our savior. And she said, okay. So we stopped by a tree and we prayed together. And about 40 years later, I went to that neighborhood and I parked my car. And I took a walk, and of course, I didn't know what tree it was, but I marked that moment because it changed everything. It changed the entire trajectory of my life, and I owe a great debt to that church. The second church was Willow Creek. I had the chance as a young person to help start the church, I was there for about 30 years. Uh, we started in a movie theater, and um, God did something amazing and remarkable and it was a profound privilege to help that church. In recent years, my husband and I have felt called to help a new young church. We meet in a converted warehouse, um, downtown Chicago. It's called Soul City Church. My husband and I are two of the oldest people in the church, for sure. In fact, most Sundays as we're leaving, my husband says, no, I am the oldest person in this church. Um, Our daughters attend there, too, and as I told the ladies yesterday, I've learned that with adult children, if you're paying for brunch, they are so there. They are right there. So they meet us after church, and we go out um, to eat together. Uh, But my ministry has allowed me to visit all kinds of churches, and I've never seen a perfect church. I've never been a part of a perfect church, but I do love the church, and I want it to thrive. I want every church to thrive, and I'm zealous for other people to love the church too. Are you growing in your zeal for God's house? I want to commend your volunteers and your staff here. Um, I've only been here a couple days, but I have an intuitive sense about communities of faith. And these are some incredibly faithful and unbelievably gifted people that God has blessed you with. These folks care about God's house, and they are zealous for it. If this is your church, what would it look like for you to be zealous about this place? Well, first, it would mean that you pray for the leaders on a regular basis. You pray for the leaders of Door of Hope and, most importantly, you believe the very best about them. If you hear a rumor, if you hear some slander, you don't assume it's true. You believe the best. You go to the source if you have to check something out and find something out, you go directly to that leader and you communicate clearly and you don't spread uh, rumors. It means you figure out what your part is to play in this community, that you observe where the church needs work, where it's not as great as it could be and you lovingly do what you can to bring improvements. It means you speak well of the church and its people. It means that you don't see yourself as a consumer You don't just come in here and sit and receive, and that's okay if you're visiting. But if you've been here a while, you start to say, you know what, I want to do my part. I want to play a part in making this a beautiful place. You are consumed with zeal to be a player on the field. It means if you head to the restroom or the toilets, whatever you call it, after church, and you see paper towels that need to be picked up, you do it yourself because this is your church and you want it to be beautiful. God is calling you and me to be zealous about his house. Okay, second question. Are you a friend of sinners? Now that may seem like an odd question because we are all of us sinners. In a way, I'm saying am I my own friend too. But the Bible makes it very, very clear that the longer we are Christians, the more we should be loving others. And the sad thing is that's not true. Here's something else that Dan Kimball uh, discovered. I want to show you this little chart. Um, it's like a graph. So basically, this side is the longer you are a Christian. So for some of you, that have, hasn't even happened yet. For others of you, it's been many, many years. For me, it's been decades. Okay, so this is the longer you are a Christian. This is the number of non Christians that you associate with regularly. And I'm not talking about just at work or at school. I'm talking about people that you are investing in, in in relationship. And the sad thing is that the trend and the statistics show that this goes down the longer we are Christians. The longer we are Christians, the less contact we seem to have with people who are outside the faith, especially intentional contact. Our social time gradually becomes exclusively a holy huddle with people we're comfortable with, people who believe the same thing we believe, people who already know Jesus. And what's worse is that we can develop an attitude about people outside the door, and we can look at them with contempt and judgment. There's a poet who wrote a beautiful poem many, many years ago called I Stand Near the Door, and it's perfect for your church with its name. But he says, you know, some people come into the door of faith and they become a follower of Jesus and they grow spiritually and they go deeper and deeper and deeper and farther and farther away from the door. And he says, I stand near the door. I stand near the door because I remember what it was like outside the door. And I always have my hand there ready to help someone who's still struggling to find the door to faith. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. It's one of my favorite names that he had. In fact, the religious leaders were full of criticism for the ways of Jesus. And when Matthew, the tax collector, decided to follow Jesus, he immediately made a decision. He said, I'm going to have a party at my house tonight. Look at this scene described in Matthew chapter 9. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, in our day, we may wonder what is the big deal about tax collectors. You call it the Australian tax office. We call it the IRS. But those folks aren't considered to be traitors, I hope like they were in the first century. Back then, the tax collectors would take a profit by taxing more than was necessary. So they would say, you owe $500, but they would actually take $100 of it. They were thought of as thieves, and they were really hated by everyone. Jesus included prostitutes and tax collectors and the sick and the marginalized in his gatherings. And later, in Matthew chapter 11, that's where Jesus was given the name friend of sinners what is striking about this story is that the invitation for all of those sketchy people to come to dinner was initiated by matthew he was a fresh convert to the ways of jesus were a lot of these people were probably in his social circle and he couldn't wait for his friends to come and see what he had experienced to come and meet jesus it's like come to my house please come And he filled his house with people who were far from God. You know, you and I only have so much discretionary time in our lives. We make choices with what to do with our open time, our social time. Let's say, for example, you have an open Friday night. Let's say you decide that maybe you'd like to hang out with some people to connect over dinner or a movie or a sporting event. Who are you going to call? Most of us, me included without even thinking, contact one of our Christian friends. It's so comfortable and fun and easy. There's another uh, couple that my husband and I have been friends with now for, wow, about 35 years. And they live in our neighborhood, and we get along with both of them, and we love to do dinner and a movie with Dan and Lynn. But what if sometimes we would think about people outside the door? What if we became intentional and became more inclusive and maybe even invited some other people to join us who are not yet in the faith? Pastor Bill Hybels calls this throwing a Matthew party in honor of the tax collector who invited all his lost friends to come to his house and hang out with Jesus. Maybe you have a group of Christian friends and you could include someone not yet in the faith to join you for a meal or to have an activity together. Maybe my little movie foursome could sometimes widen out and include a person or a couple who we could extend ourselves to. You know, being a friend of sinners requires intentionality. So think about your sphere of influence right now. Who do you know in your neighborhood, or your workplace, or your school, or your sports team, or your book club, who does not yet know Jesus? Think of a name. Everybody think of a name. Could you make an intentional invitation to include that person in some kind of social experience, maybe just over coffee or a meal? Would anyone accuse you or me of being a friend of sinners? I'd love to be called that. I don't think I'm living that way fully at this point, but I would love to be called a friend of sinners. And that leads us completely to question three. Are you living a magnetic life? No matter how knowledgeable we are about the faith, no matter how often you and I extend invitations, no matter how great the preaching in this church, or the music, all of it, which I believe is wonderful, or the youth leaders, none of us will have a true impact unless we are living lives that draw other people to Jesus. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, we must remember that it's possible to affirm the existence of God with your lips and deny his existence with your life. People are watching you and me. They see our character, they hear our words, they notice whether we seem to be joyful and loving and kind and generous. Would people want to participate in the kind of life you are living? Let me be totally blunt. A person could be scary smart about this book. You could have practically memorized this book and still act like a jerk. Very possible to do. Sometimes we think it's all about the information we know, but it's more about the life that we lead. When we talk about spiritual growth or spiritual formation, we often lose our way, thinking it's about gaining knowledge. That's absolutely not the goal. You and I are being formed day by day into some kind of person. We are either becoming more like Jesus or less like Jesus with every choice we make. And if we over time are growing to be more kind and just and tolerant and wise and generous and courageous and joyful and above all loving, other people will be attracted to us and ultimately to Jesus. Frank Laubach describes God's plan this way. He says, The simple program of Christ for winning the whole world, this is the simple program, is to make each person he touches magnetic enough with love to draw others. Did you catch that? Magnetic with love. If you get nothing else out of this message, I hope you'll walk away knowing that with God's help, you can do this. You can do this. Each of us, no matter our level of education or how long we've been in the faith, whether we tend to be bold or very shy, no matter our personality, each of us can become a more loving person. We can over time grow more and more to resemble Jesus, the friend of sinners. You know, the very name Christian means Christ one, one of Christ's, I'm one of his. We can become the kind of person that others want to emulate, we can point the way to Jesus simply by how we live our lives. The earliest followers of Jesus penetrated their first century culture in remarkable ways. We read in the book of Acts how thousands of people, thousands, were joining the family of Christians every day. And there is a little comment in Acts chapter 4 that reveals the kind of reputation Peter and John had. It says, when they saw the courage of peter and john and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with jesus i love that they took notes that these men had been with jesus that inspires me would people be able to sense that i have been with jesus there is something different about me that i am centered and peaceful and giving and fun and free and wise and kind John Ortbrook says that Christians should be known as the most joyful, fun, spontaneous, loving people on the planet. And some of us walk around with the kind of demeanor or serious, angry almost, look on our face, and we wonder why people aren't attracted to the faith. Well, who would want to be like that? Uh, Not me, certainly. Every single day, you and I cross paths with people who are far from God. In your town, right here, there are many people who do not know God. And so many of them experience some kind of brokenness. They may hide it well. We're pretty good at hiding it. But they struggle with loneliness or anger or bitterness or loss or maybe just a profound emptiness. They are what we call lost. And you and I may very well be one of the only individuals with a potential to sow a seed, to extend some kindness. You may be the only person who knows them who also knows Jesus, and you could listen well. You could invest a moment or an evening getting to know that person's story. Everyone likes to tell a story, and everyone has a story to tell. We can live the way Jesus would live if he was in our body. How easily we lose sight that this is truly a matter of life and death. People's actual eternities are at stake. And so many people are just one friendship or one invitation away from receiving and understanding the grace of God and embarking on the adventure of walking with him. The stakes could not be higher. You know, I don't have to look any farther than my own family to see the fruit of seeds sown and invitations extended and magnetic lives. God often works over the decades, doesn't he? In many ways, uh, there's a divine orchestration of connections and appointments and relationships that have an amazing ripple effect over time. My story starts with my great aunt Ellen. She emigrated to the United States from Sweden. She never married. I remember her very, very well. Uh, She was involved in the lives of her three nephews, one of which was my dad. My dad was uh, one of three boys, he was the middle son his name was warren just like my husband i thought you were supposed to marry someone like your dad so i found someone with the same name <laughs> anyway um these boys grew up in chicago during what we call the depression in our country in the 1930s they had very very little money um, my father's parents did not were not people of faith they did not go to church and actually my grandfather was an alcoholic my grandmother was overwhelmed much of the time But my Aunt Ellen invited those little boys to go to a church with her and to go to what we call Sunday school. The other two boys showed no interest at all, but my dad often went. And what he most remembers sitting in Sunday school was being in a little red chair, learning the song, Jesus Loves Me. My dad did not commit his life to faith as a young man, but a seed had been sown. Much later, in his early 20s, when my dad was a fighter pilot in World War II, I think he remembered from his youth that Jesus loved him. And he came to faith. We have a picture of him by his airplane um, from World War II, and also he flew in the Korean conflict. While he was in Korea, there was a a young local boy, I think he was only about 16 years old, who used to clean the barracks, the houses of where the uh, military guys were living. His name was Jungman Lee, and he worked in my father's section. And my father began, in spite of the language barrier, to have conversations with him. Jungman came from a Buddhist family. I think he had about 11 siblings. I think there were 12 of them. In spite of the language barrier, though, my dad told him about Jesus. Now, if you knew my dad, this would surprise you because it surprises me. My dad was a very shy man, very, very quiet, a behind-the-scenes kind of person. Well, when my dad returned to the States from the war, he rallied his church in Chicago to support Jongmin coming over to study at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago for the ministry because he had become a person of faith. And he came over and they paid for him to study there, and then he became the pastor of the largest Korean American church in Los Angeles. In addition, several of Jongmin's siblings and his mother left the Buddhist faith, and came to faith in Christ. And two of his brothers also went into the ministry. Years later, Jungmin Lee's church in Los Angeles invited my parents to an event to honor them. And we have a photo of that day. There's some kind of weird plant framing my mother's face there. (laughs) Kind of weird. My middle name is Lee, after Jungmin Lee. I am the second of four children, and as I told you, I learned about faith as a little girl, not only from my church, but certainly from my parents as well. And then in high school, I got to be part of a youth group that decided not to be just a bunch of Christian kids, but to extend ourselves to our friends at school. And we started a ministry. Several hundred students came to faith, and that youth group eventually launched a church in a movie theater that became Willow Creek. And I had the profound privilege of being a leader in that church where thousands of people have discovered the love of Jesus. Do you see the ripple effect all the way back to my Aunt Ellen? My father passed away three years ago at the age of 92. In his final days, when he could no longer walk, we would sing to him. I'm a terrible singer, so I would wait till everybody had left. And one night in particular, I remember sitting with him all night, and I would sing songs of the faith. He could no longer speak, but he could hear us. And he would always smile when i would sing jesus loves me at the memorial service for my dad we told the story of my aunt ellen and the little red chair and my daughter samantha was on a flight back to new york after the funeral and she wrote a poem titled the little red chair that i would like to close with she describes all the different chairs my father sat in through his life including his chair as a pilot and the big cushy chair he sat in as he grew old To understand the poem, you also need to understand the reference to my parents' marriage. They were married for 68 years, and they had only known one another six days when they got engaged. Uh, He was heading into the war. We always used to tease him, how many girls did you propose to before you left, actually? Um, But he claims it was just one. He studied, I think the poem also references him studying at the Illinois Institute of technology, and I think other than that, you'll understand this poem. And I will try to get through this. Uh, It's very tender, mostly because my mom passed away last week. So here we go. It's rare that I cry before I even start. That's not good, so. okay, the little red chair. In a little red chair, a little boy sat where Aunt Ellen had dropped him until she would return. In a little red chair, a little boy learned that Jesus loves me. That's what he was told. Jesus loves me, this I know. This he came to know, the boy in the chair, and he sang along to his new favorite song, because singing it might make it true. And because it's by far the most catchy of all the songs that were taught in red chairs in those days, was his voice hollow even then? a little boy with my grandfather's voice, little ones to him belong, lifting up little voices from little red chairs, not knowing anything of the chairs to come. At the Illinois Institute of Numbers, where he would work to study and study to work and sit in a stiff chair and prove that he knew enough to sit in a cockpit, a small chair, a severe chair with a dangerous view entrusted to him, a chair he'd probably only know the edge of like the wooden pew he'd barely touch, giddy as he'd be when he'd say, I do, to a woman he barely knew, but would sit with, in movie theater seats, at booths, on benches, car seats, and couches, in waiting room chairs, and upon kitchen stools for 68 years to come. His chair at the table with three girls and a son, his seat behind the wheel on a sticky road trip, folding chairs at the weddings of his babies, hospital chairs where he'd first hold the babies of his babies, a padded seat in the dining room of a retirement buffet, until finally a light blue chair that slightly sways, from which he will watch whatever sport is in season next to his bride, who has never not been in season. But he didn't know this then singing boldly from the first chair because aunt ellen told him to because the bible told him so is this then what is meant by a legacy of faith someone named aunt ellen sat a little boy in a little red chair and he learned jesus loves me yes jesus loves me and he sang it right from there until he knew it by heart and could sing it from any chair he would occupy because singing it he found it to be true And so he would sing it to his babies in their high chairs, and they would sing it to their babies in their car seats, and they would all sing it back to him when he could no longer sit up. But this he knew, Jesus loves me. Yes, yes, yes. Even now, Aunt Ellen's drop kids in little red chairs, and Grandpa sings their song before a big red throne. (laughs) thank you you know my friends your life matters more than you know I think my aunt Ellen in heaven knows now the kind of legacy she left but you don't know whose life you might touch and the ripple effect it might go from there down through the generations are you a friend of sinners Are you living a magnetic life? We can do this. We can do this. We can be loving. We can listen. We can be joyful. We can be a good friend. We can serve someone in need. And we will be the life of Jesus to someone else. And we will point the way to him. Will you pray with me? Gracious Father. We confess that it's all too easy to just hang around with people like us, people who already know you. Help us to be men and women and young people who stand near the door, who have a hand outstretched to people who still need to find a relationship with you. Forgive us for thinking we're better than anyone else or judging anyone else, and instead help us realize that only by your grace are we in your family and we want and need to extend that grace to others who yet do not know you. I pray for anyone in this room today who's still investigating the faith, and I pray, God, that they will ask their questions, and I pray that they will be welcomed in this place and included in this place and loved well in this place. And then I pray for people in the streets of Launceston who don't yet know you, who have never engaged in a relationship with you, and I pray that the door of hope will live up to its name, God, and this will be a place where they will find you and where their children will find you and where their grandchildren will find you. In the name of Jesus, the friend of sinners, we pray. Amen.